0: Okay, I think we can start. Uh, There may be a few more people uh, straggling in. We have a somewhat larger than expected crowd today. Uh, Well, good afternoon to everyone. I guess it's already afternoon. It's 12.08. And uh, welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Dick Morningstar, the founding director of the Global Energy Center here. And on behalf of uh, the Energy Center and the Council, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, and it really is great to see such a such a big turnout uh, for today's discussion on an extremely timely topic, the future of Iran's energy sector in the wake of the historic nuclear cord that uh, hopefully will be formally adopted uh, next month. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, it seems like the nuclear deal has been dissected from every possible angle. Uh, Now that the deal is done, barring any major surprises I've learned in the past to never say never, but uh, um, barring any major surprises, we aim to to assess the future of the Iranian energy sector, and particularly the Iranian natural gas sector in a post-sanctions world. Iran is blessed with vast natural gas resources. It holds the largest proven uh, uh, reserves of natural gas in the world. But its natural gas sector is greatly underdeveloped and in dire need of an infusion uh, of international investment and technical expertise after years of sanctions. Today we're happy to host this panel to discuss the future prospects of the Iranian natural gas production and exports and evaluate the possible geopolitical and commercial ramifications of an ascendant Iranian gas sector. Now that doesn't mean that during the question and answer and discussion period that you can't ask about oil or other aspects of the energy sector. Moderating, we have a just a great panel today. Moderating uh, today's panel will be Yagana Tawbadi, uh, a Reuters journalist who has reported extensively on Iran energy, on Iran, and as well as Iran energy uh, and foreign policy uh Ms Trabati will be joined by really a terrific panel of Atlantic Council senior fellows each of the participants are senior fellows here and they bring their own unique expertise to this uh, discussion uh Dr Sara is a non-resident senior fellow at the Global Energy Center and president of SVB Inter- Energy International and she is a foremost expert on the Iranian energy sector. In fact, at one time worked in the Iranian energy sector. Uh, Dr. Brenda Schaefer, also a non-resident senior fellow for the Global Energy Center and a visiting researcher and professor at uh, Georgetown University, uh, focuses extensively on the geopolitics of energy across the Middle East and Eurasia and finally Barbara Slavin uh, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center uh, and who's running our Iran initiative uh, and is the Washington correspondent for Al-Monitor and has been a leading voice on Iran, on sanctions and on the nuclear agreement for years. So needless to say, we're very excited to be hosting what will be a very lively uh, discussion today. I would Just as a final housekeeping note, uh, would encourage you all to join in the conversation on Twitter using hashtag <coughs> ACenergy. And so without any further ado, my job is over. So I'll turn things over to uh, uh, Yagana and our distinguished panel. So thank you.
1: All right. Well, um, thank you, everyone. everyone, Thank you, Ambassador Morningstar, for the introduction. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here um, this afternoon. Um, As Ambassador Morningstar said, my name is Yegana Torbati, and I'm a Reuters reporter focusing on national security and foreign policy issues here. And I previously covered Iran for Reuters out of Dubai. So, our conversation here takes place in a context where we've basically the the nuclear deal is virtually guaranteed to be implemented, barring any unforeseen circumstances. And much of the discussion around the deal has focused on what the impact would be on Iran's oil exports and on the oil market in general. Um, It's largely assumed by most experts that Iran could return to pre 2012 levels of exports within about a year of the sanctions being fully lifted and uh, that that, the World Bank estimates that would have an effect of um, decreasing oil prices by about 14%. But there's been less understanding and less discussion of um, what the deal and what the lifting of sanctions would mean for Iran's gas uh, exports and gas production um, and it, how it would use those um, uh, ga- uh, gas reserves um, domestically. Um, and so we thought this would be a, a, a perfect time to discuss this issue. Um, particularly because sort of around the last six months or so, there's been increasing talk, especially in Washington, at least, that I've noticed, um, whenever kind of the issue of European energy security comes up, there's always sort of an increasingly explicit assumption that um, Iranian gas exports post-sanctions could possibly um, make up for, uh, take the place of Russian gas um, imports. And we thought it would be good to kind of more closely delve into that question look at some of the limitations and, and the different factors that uh, that surround Iranian gas production and exports because Iranian gas um, the reserves are second largest in the world but the um, exports have really not um, kind of lived up to that. So um, to discuss that, we, we have really an all-star panel and I won't repeat the introductions. You also have their, their bios in front of you. So I'll just kind of delve right in. Um, Sarah, I'd like to start with you. Could you kind of give us a sense of, um, what is the Iranian um, domestic scene in terms of what are their priorities um, for their gas reserves in the next five, ten years? Uh, what would they like to accomplish? Uh, are they more focusing on domestic use of their gas reserves, such as um, you know electricity um, internally and um, reinjection into the oil fields, or are they hoping to? Uh, what are their priorities in terms of gas exports as well? Sure,
2: thanks. Uh, First, I would like to thank Ambassador Morningstar and the uh, Atlantic Council's uh, Global Energy uh, Group for organizing this panel. Uh, With response to your questions, uh, something is very important when we look at Iran's uh, energy policy after the sanctions uh, have gone through a whole uh, change and evolution, I would say, in compared to pre-2012. Uh, sanctions and even uh, with compared to uh, the first round of uh, Zangines ministry early 2000. One of the major changes is how can Iran be more resistance toward the sanctions or any possible limitations or political challenge uh, in the future? When it comes back to the gas, most of it evolves around Iran's supreme leader idea of economy of resistance, uh, which uh, one of the articles uh, discussed that Iran should increase the value added inside the country and export more final products rather than the raw material. This way, Iran could not only add the value added inside the country, creates lots, bit, bit more jobs and a uh, better economy, but also, uh, gets more resistance toward uh, any possible uh, sanctions or further uh, political problem. For instance, one of the major uh, policies for Iran natural gas is to converting it into electricity and export electricity. So. Uh, oil minister already has a quota and portion of how much of their gas is going to be converted to electricity. And imagine if Iran is uh, exporting electricity to Turkey rather than natural gas. It's harder to convince Iran's neighbors or whoever is importing Iran's electricity to stop purchasing electricity from Iran because of any sanctions rather than natural gas, because it directly affects the final uh, users. The other, uh, also to using it in their own petrochemical facilities, refineries and sell more final products. However, exporting of natural gas, because it creates longer strategic ties between the receivers of natural gas, is also important for Iran. Exporting to Europe was traditionally part of the discussion between uh, Iranian and still uh, There have been a uh, European delegate, like Spanish delegate, recently announced that they're interested in helping with developing a LNG facility in Iran in order to take the gas to back to Europe or exporting natural gas to Oman and then re-exporting it via their uh, LNG facilities or using the current existing pipeline like in Azerbaijan. However, Iranian minister has put lots of focus on in his statement on exporting gas to GCC neighbors. So they're trying to also rebuilding and creating longer strategic ties with their GCC neighbors, but also price wise, it's easier for them to compete in in this region rather than with Russian gas in the European market. If Iran wants to export its LNG to Europe, uh, the prices of course might be uh, way more than Russian gas, but because of the reasons you mentioned, because of the Russian Euro, uh, EU crisis, Europe is really keen in substituting uh, Russian gas or finding al- alternative, alternative resources. So exporting to Europe would also be part of the discussion.
1: So then maybe it's best to take a bit of a historical view. So there have been attempts by Iran to export to GCC countries, and it's always kind of fallen apart over pricing disputes. So I kind of wonder, imposed post-sanctions, do you think Iran is more amenable to charging lower prices? And Maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe my understanding is incorrect. So that's... To GCC or to Europe? GCC. So Gulf countries. And then I'm thinking of Kuwait and Bahrain. I think even the Oman deal kind of has not gone very, very far because of pricing disputes. And then secondly, um, you know, if you look back at headlines like from 1995, there's talk of Iran, Europe, um, gas exports. So, you know what what could be different this time around like what were the constraints maybe um, a little bit back then if you could touch on and what would be what has changed now um, and how those deals might work and would they be more feasible
2: when we are looking on a gas deal we have to look in two sides one is the price of course the other one is trust because gas export is unlike the oil export like is a long-term Commitments, like a marriage, 30 years of commitment. So you have to have that basic trust. And when it comes between uh, the problem between Iran and GCC members, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, or other countries, is an issue of trust. So how much these countries can see Iran as a reliable source of natural gas to base their electricity sector, or petrochemical, in case of Saudi Arabia, based on Iranian natural gas. The other issue is price. When, uh, even at the current moment, Iran doesn't have enough export capacity. So if Iran wants to export, I mean, currently most, 90% of Iran export goes to uh, Turkey. And Iran and Turkey had lots of price uh, conflicts over the past uh, years. The reason for that is that Iran, not in the past two years, but previously had to import a certain amount to re-export it or exp- have that export capacity. So even at the current moment today, Iran would have a price issue because doesn't have that enough capacity. But if you look at 2018 or 2020, that Iran's natural gas capacity has built higher, perhaps they could have more. uh, uh, Their issue with the price would be, of course, less uh,
1: of an issue. And um, I want to come back to you again at the end, but just one more question, which is on the question of capacity. So as the sanctions are lifted, Iran's economy starts to improve. There's greater need for electricity. Natural gas domestically, demand goes up. Um, If they want to uh, export more oil, which, you know, gets them, uh, it's far more lucrative for them to export oil rather than gas. um, Iran's oil fields are very mature. It'll have to re-inject a lot of its gas into the oil fields and probably more gas than it's doing so now. So do you see the, the domestic capacity for production increasing enough to kind of feed... Um, these different, uh, you know, uh, in you know what they Sectors. envision in terms of what they want, uh, what they want to export as well, and and domestically, is there, are they going to have enough domestically to achieve what they want?
2: Yes, I mean. Uh... Iran's gas production according to minister's uh, plan is going to be from south Bar's, almost doubled by 2018 in his plans we are more looking by we are more looking at it by 2020 so their gas export the gas production capacity is going to increase uh, significantly on the oil oil side Iran is very keen to regain its lost market share and OPEC capacity and its production capacity of pre 2012 however increasing it way further than that is not part of their plan. There is this West Karun uh, oil fields, which the minister is expecting to increase 700,000 barrels per day of oil to Iranian capacity. But most of their uh, focus would be on their natural gas, especially the shared natural gas field. South Pars is the main one. 70% of NIOC's budget in the past few years was just allocated to South Pars. Uh, not because it's the shear field, but also because of the condensate. When Iran produces natural gas, it produce, it also produces a lot of condensate as a byproduct of natural gas, which consider kind of better valued and better priced of their own crude oil. So by exp- expanding their natural gas capacity, they're going to expand their condensate capacity. Their target is to increasing their about uh, 600,000 barrels per day of condensate to about a million by 2018. And this is going to increase their, of course, it's kind of like imagining having 1 million extra crude oil to whether their plan is to refine most of it domestically or to export it.
1: Okay, So I want to come back to you at the end. Sure. is my mic working. I want to come back to you at the end to discuss the contracts and how those might be revised. Um, Barbara, if I could turn to you, can you kind of set the stage for us in terms of what is gonna be the pace of sanctions removal over the next year or so, and um, how will that look?
3: Well, obviously, uh, we're operating under the assumption that Congress will not be able to block this. Uh, There's another vote, yet again, today in the Senate, but we assume there'll be the same result as last week. Uh, If Congress does not block, uh, then uh, the implementation of the deal should go forward, uh, starting, I believe it was, 90 days, right, afterwards. Uh, after the signing on July the 14th. Uh, Then it all depends on how quickly Iran takes the steps that it's obliged to do under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, Does it take them three months, five months, six months? Uh, We don't know. But they have a lot of work to do in terms of uh, reducing the size of their nuclear program, as we know, um, and also satisfying the International Atomic Energy Agency about the possible past military dimensions of the program. The assumption is, though, that somehow this is going to happen by early next year. Uh, So then we will finally see uh, the uh, sanctions begin to come off. And I brought with me my copy of the JCPOA, for those who have not read it thoroughly five or six times. It's very explicit. And, And the key elements are that, of course, the UN sanctions are off, the European Union sanctions are off, and the United States has to waive all of the executive orders, all of the provisions of all the sanctions legislation that's been passed over the last few years, uh, that impose secondary sanctions on the Europeans, the Asians, and others who trade with Iran. Um, we had a little discussion before coming on about the issue of secondary sanctions. Many of you may remember that in the 1990s, an effort was made. Uh, when the Clinton administration was in office to prevent European uh, and other companies from investing more than I think it was $20 million in Iran's gas or oil sector. Uh, That effort spectacularly failed. Uh, Companies basically told the Clinton administration to take a hike Uh, Stu Eisenstadt, who is the chairman of my task force and was given the unenviable job of having to persuade uh, countries to go along with the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act, as it was then called, Uh, the most he was able to get out of them was an agreement not to provide so-called dual-use items to Iran, but the European and Asian companies went right ahead with their investments in Iran. The only thing that finally stopped them uh, was the aggressive... uh, activities of the Iranian government in, in escalating the nuclear program after Ahmadinejad came in in 2006, uh, the human rights abuses of 2009 after uh, disputed presidential elections, and the efforts of the Obama administration uh, in 2010, 11, and 12 uh, to mobilize the international community behind these, these sanctions. As a result, uh, the Europeans dropped off almost completely, and. Iran's major Asian trading partners uh, accepted quotas, in effect, on what they could purchase from Iran. All of that goes now. If you look at the JCPOA, uh, you see that um, all of these regulations go uh, and that um, the United States is going to cease application of uh, a whole list of, uh, of sanctions which will allow Iran uh, to use its banks again, including its central bank, to get insurance, to uh, get investment, most important of all, in uh, its energy sector, to sell refined petroleum products and and petrochemicals, um, to go back into the SWIFT system for banking, even to have access to U.S. dollars for use among its uh, non-American clients in their transactions with Iran. Um, so, assuming this all goes through, uh, I don't foresee, despite talk in Congress about trying to extend what is now called the Iran Sanctions Act, which expires at the end of 2016, I don't see that they're going to be able to, uh, to uh, reimpose that. President Obama would certainly veto that, and I don't think any countries, uh, uh, any of the trading partners of Iran would abide by it, even if by some miracle it went through. The only thing that would cause these sanctions to come back is a massive violation of the nuclear deal by Iran. And that makes absolutely no sense uh, in either political terms or economic terms for Iran. As is quite obvious from Sarah's uh, presentation, Iran desperately needs to sell uh, more oil and gas. It desperately needs, in particular, foreign investment uh, in its uh, oil and gas sector. And I don't think they're going to uh, do anything that would get in the way. Of that re-entry into the markets, so um, uh, you know this is this is quite quite the document, and uh, all of the sanctions, all these layers, do come off at least uh, as long as President Obama is there.
1: Um, the Supreme Leader has not kind of really given his stamp of approval yet. He's said some statements in support of the team mm-hmm. um, that negotiated the deal, but when it comes to the, the agreement itself. Um, he hasn't really weighed one way or the other. There is kind of a very vigorous debate going on right now in Iran um, with the more hardline elements criticizing parts of the deal. Do you see um, you know, the debate going on inside Iran? Would it delay the implementation of it? Um, with the steps that Iran would need to take in terms of opening things up to the IAEA, would, would there be any inclination on their part or would they just be um, you know, would would there be a delay given that the very vigorous debate that's going on right now?
3: I don't see that ambivalence uh, in the supreme leader's comments about the JCPOA. I think what we've seen is that he's returned to calling the U.S. the Great Satan and suggesting that there wouldn't be great cooperation with the United States on other issues. But, you know, he's reacting to the rhetoric that he's hearing from from Congress and from the opponents of the deal, which of course has been in- incredibly harsh, even. Uh, hillary clinton had some rather rough things to say about iran in a speech last week so i think that's just simply playing to a domestic political base uh, i know there's a process going on in iran for review of the deal but again i think that's just to say that you know me too we can have our own review process because the u.s congress has been having its review process uh, the decision i think was made when they signed uh, back in july and uh... Khamenei and the Supreme Council of National Security uh, has made the decision to go forward. So as long as implementation takes place on, on the US side, European side, uh, it, it will go through. The only question is, technically, how quickly can Iran get rid of 98% of its stockpile of low enriched uranium? How quickly can it uh, remove thousands of centrifuges from, from Natanz and, uh, and take the other steps that, that are required mm. for sanctions relief?
1: Mm-hmm. And so in your view, you don't think that the secondary sanctions were going to see a snapback of those, but you also kind of added as a bit of a caveat, as long as President Obama um, is in office, mm-hmm. you know, do you think European companies would have the appetite to make you know, billion-dollar investments in Iran uh, you know, po- with, with the possibility that the, the secondary sanctions could go back into place under a future administration or if Iran were to uh, renege on the deal?
3: It's a very good question. I think, uh, you know, the campaign rhetoric, particularly on the Republican side, has been very, very tough. Uh, but I still think that um, if the agreement goes into uh, effect, if Iran does what it's supposed to do, I mean, the Iranian concessions are really front-loaded, let's face it, before they see any sanctions relief, they have to set back their program uh, by years, in effect. Uh, I think if if it goes through and, uh, there are no violations. It's going to be very difficult for the next U.S. president, uh, Republican or Democrat, uh, to renounce the deal. And uh, you know, the oil market and gas market are not what they were uh, some years ago. There's a bit of a glut, I think companies will make decisions, and and I defer to my two experts here, but companies will make decisions on the basis of what other resources are available in the world, what the price situation looks like. Uh, And I don't think they're going to be overly affected by uh, the U.S. uh, attitude at at this point.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Um, So I'm sure we'll come back to you as well. Um, Brenda, I'd like to turn to you. Um, could you speak a little bit about the potential markets that Iran could export into and kind of what are the, some of the benefits or the obstacles of each? Both, you know, there's in, the, in its own region, Pakistan and Oman, and, may, and perhaps the GCC countries, but then also potentially Europe. If you can kind of give us your view uh, on that.
4: Sure, sure. Well, let's start with the Gulf. I mean, this is the obvious. Uh, market um, one, one because of fifty percent fifty percent of the electricity produced in the region is still produced by oil so there's a huge incentive there to, to move from power generation from oil uh, uh, to natural gas um, so it's, it's definitely a natural market and then if you look at all the all the different assessments of the future you know growth for natural gas markets the Middle East especially sp- specifically the Gulf but the greater Middle East is really one of the future sources of, of demand growth for, for natural gas. Um, but if we look on the flip side despite this sort of almost natural market right there um, Qatar which doesn't have the same political problems as, as Iran has which has this tremendous volumes more de, you know more developed uh, ga- gas uh, export uh, industry has not been able to to supply gas in significant quantities to to its neighbors I mean you even have things that are like Kuwait which was, you know was almost a short short ride away from from Qatar um, would choose to ha- import expensive LNG over over a, you know, a pipeline through Bahrain and Saudi, Saudi Arabia, even even to, even to Kuwait, and you know, these are countries that are, are peaceful. And so, I think that one thing there's a lot of you know the same kind of issues that that came in between Qatar's export and some of its neighbors in the Gulf will certainly affect, uh, as Sarah pointed out, will certainly affect Iran's uh, prospects. And I think it's going to up some of these issues. Actually, are going to exasperate some of the existing conflicts or disagreements in the Gulf. For instance, I think many of the border delimitation issues that sometimes come up in the region are actually going to flare up more frequently look, for instance, that South Pars, North Dome, you know, as long as Iran isn't producing there, so what's happened, how each other's production affects, you know, technically the, I mean, that the gas fields don't follow international law and say, okay, this is the demarcation, you know, and so there's going to be activity there, sorry?
1: <laughs> right
4: two and milkshake excellent yeah, exactly yeah, you're gonna so so there's going to be in you know when you have upped production from Iran and South pars it's going to affect North dome so I think this is one one issue we should be watching um you're going to have potential. You know the the way the region the region has to go from well it could do what it wants. It doesn't have to go, but it it's logical that it should go from oil to to natural gas. And at this and the way in order to incentivize uh, uh, production of natural gas in these countries which have which have the prospective volumes, you have to have a higher domestic price. You know if we learn anything from the recent Egyptian discovery, for instance, that by offering a, dom- a high domestic price, it was able to bring the companies in like this find the new discoveries, much better for Egypt, right? So the Gulf countries are going to have to raise their domestic price for gas, or at least what they're offering to companies in order to find this gas um, or in order to justify Iranian, you know, because Iran is not going to give it away for free. And this can actually, um, even though it's a good economic move, it can also unleash some instability in the region if we, if we lower subsidies for electricity for natural gas in, in some of these regions. And I would say that the, the Gulf region, it's really a paradox where it's a region that exports gas to the whole world but is really a gas-deprived uh, uh, region and so I think there is going to be a lot of activity which Iran can or cannot, you know, play play into uh, uh, in, in this region. Um, looking looking a little bit beyond, yeah, you said Pakistan. It's something that on one hand. Um, Years of talk, little movements—it's it, it, something that can happen again. You know, it, it's an issue on the Pakistani side of, of price, probably more than anything that's connected to to, to politics. What's the status
1: uh, of the pipeline, the Iran pipeline. the peace pipeline? Yeah. <laughs> so Iran built its side of that, right? Um, yeah.
4: You You're know, waiting for first the thing, well, let's just even just discuss these terms. And you know, in terms of peace pipelines, you know, sometimes peace uh, enables uh, flows of gas. But we don't have one incident in the inter- international system where countries were at war, and because of the incentive of trading oil or gas, that they were able to, you know, they were able to, to, to you know, to, to defer their their conflicts. I mean, could you imagine how that would even work commercially? Okay, you know, soldiers over here, soldiers over there, pipe, peace pipeline coming through. But but anyways, um, but it's not just an Iranian context. We find this in the Middle East. We find this, you know, everyone wants to have peace pipelines. Um, but, uh, yeah, on the Iranian side, the pipeline is built. I, on the Pakistani side, it's not completely built. Sarah, do you have some insights on the, the contractual side on the...
2: Pending. They talk- <laughs> well, do they, they, they have it. They, they have a price issues? And again, because Iran at this point doesn't have enough gas capacity, mm-hmm. and then going to India, it's not at all in the question now so, because of the problems with Pakistan yeah. and all. I remember prices.
1: covering, I think the opening of this, or the they, they were like putting, you know, st- starting work on it back in 2013
4: or something. So it's been. It's been a long time coming, but right. anyway, continue. And, and I think that's a good introduction to what's going to happen on the European front, where uh, you know we we have. If there's something that's indicative of how gas works, and poor Ambassador Morningstar's earned so many flight hours, <laughs> knowing this that you know it's years and years of these things are so complicated, multi-billion-dollar investments, and like you said, like it's not like oil where you're you're we, you don't know who your market is. We really have to know who your market is uh, uh, ahead of time. And we're, you know, maybe 10 to 12 years for project is operating before actually the companies recover their their investment. So I think with Europe, too, on one hand, we're seeing a lot of hype on the European uh, institutions. You know, even uh, the director general for external policies in April said, you know, we see Iran as a credible alternative to Russia. I mean, not to complement Russian gas, but like an alternative to Russia. Uh, with the EU LNG strategy is coming out soon. It seems like Iran is going to play a big part in this this document that's going to be uh, released soon. Um, and I think that it's it's going to be a, lo- a going to take a lot more time to significant quantities of Iranian gas uh, meet European markets. Probably the biggest reason that it will take a long time is that you know if someone's going to block it, it's probably going to be its northern uh, uh, neighbor, uh, Russia, where, where we've seen that. Um, you know, Russia and Iran, actually, in, in general, the, the removal of sanctions and the return of Iran to to cooperation, perhaps, with Europe and the United States, it creates a lot of dilemmas for policy challenges, actually, for Russia, because they have, well, Russia and Iran, while well, they have a lot of common threats and a common uh, common enemies. If those are removed, um, they also have a lot of common strategic, you know, or, or they're actually on opposing sides of different strategic challenges. And one of the biggest is, you know, as you pointed out, Iran has the second largest volume volumes of natural gas. It's probably one of the only countries that can give Russia a run for its money in in Europe. And and for that reason, Iran will do its best, Russia will do its best to make sure it doesn't happen. We saw a good example of this in 2007 when a small gas pipeline was built between Armenia and Iran. Uh, You know, it shouldn't have been a very big interest to Russia, but Gazprom bought up this pipeline, imposed a small circumference on it, made sure that Armenia wasn't one day, you know, it's easy to get to Georgia. From Georgia, you're already at the Black Sea and and could be a conduit for Iran. Iranian gas uh, to Europe. So bottom line, I would say on the European thing, we're going to see a lot of energy diplomacy, um, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of declarations, a lot of conferences probably, um, but it will take a long time before Iranian gas will, in significant quantities, maybe through Turkey, small quantities could be faster again, as Sarah pointed out, if their domestic production was, was upped, um, but it will take a long time to be a major supplier to Europe. So then, um, just to kind of simplify it
1: It, you know if if Iran were to you know be able to up its production capacity significantly enough I mean right now it export it's it's basically a net importer um maybe maybe a little bit of a exporter it kind of varies year to year but if it were to if it were able to increase its domestic its production enough what would you see as the most likely export market
4: um, again, it's always a com. I mean, it, commercially, what makes most sense is always close markets. You know, it's less risk, less investment, and the, these are gas-hungry uh, markets. But again, this could be politically complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to Pakistan and India, the complication is the price. Really, the, that's having the funding there. Um, so maybe upping, upping into Turkey and from Turkey into to additional markets. You know, Iraq, I guess it's basically something that's already happened. They could up uh, export to Iraq um, as well. Okay.
1: So Sarah, um, a few more questions for you. Actually, um, you know, many 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 companies have had a go at South Pars. Uh, the French, I uh, believe, the Japanese, Chinese, Indians. Um, and a lot, and they've all walked away, given that, you know, they kind of realized or believe that the return on investment wouldn't be quite enough. Um, and, and I think that, I believe that's, you know, due to the structure that Iran has for its, uh, its energy contracts. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this new uh, Iranian energy contract. Do you know kind of what it would look like? And, you know, or when do you think we'll see sort of the details of that? And would it be enough for, for international um, energy companies to uh, want to invest?
2: Well, that's a very good point, because many companies left Iran before even the sanctions tightened on Iran's upstream investment. And the reason for that was the upstream investment regulation in Iran were not simply very attractive uh, for them. And then uh, the rate of the return compared with the risks that exist in Iran was not uh, compensating these companies. Total, ENI, the rest of them. Uh, So what happened uh, for the new current, new uh, New to uh, um, in, to be introduced soon, uh, Iran Petroleum Contract or IPC. Iranian government start to talking with these companies a lot and involving them with what they really want and what makes them happy. So still there are a lot of confusions. Well, of course, hasn't been yet tra- introduced officially. It's going to be, Iranian officials mentioned that they're going to introduce it in December in a, in a conference in London. However, from the different presentations and the talks we had uh, with different people, it's kind of like a base, basic model of production sharing, which uh, an I. Will be involved from exploration if they don't get any economically, ben- if they don't uh, discover any economically beneficial uh, field, they are going to, they are not going to be compensated, uh, and this is same as buyback. But they are going to uh, have the, prior- they are going to be a priority for um, participating in, in another exploration uh, project. So they they don't want to go in the traditional bidding round. Then we have the development phase. And something very unique since 1979 is that Iran is going to involve the company, the IOC, in the production uh, process. So the duration of the contract from seven years is going to be prolonged to 20 to 25 years. And that also creates a long political and energy alliances between these partners. So it also politically benefits Iran. And what will happen is that pre, pre in the previous contract, the moment that Iran and uh, the field would uh, start producing, the 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 IOC would be stopped. I mean, perhaps going back, leave the field. And NIOC would uh, start marketing and selling these products it's and the then national, pay back. The, the, the national Iranian oil. oil company marketing and selling this product and then paying back the company. But even in 2000, uh, early 2000, Iran had problem with marketing and selling some of these products, let's say like condensate, because it had lots of sulfur and mercaptan. But especially now that the prices are low, Iran lost part of its market share, involving IOCs in the production process helps Iran with marketing. So this company would get a certain share of the production, like in production sharing as their compensation, and they could help NIC with selling this on fine market. However, still we don't know. We are not sure that how this agreement is going to work. There's The NIOC official announced that there's going to be a joint operating company formed, like a joint venture between NIOC Mm -hmm. or one of its subsidiaries with the IOC, and then they're going to involve the IOC in the production uh, process. Also, the benefit of this for Iran is that the IOC will help at the end of the line with EOR, IOR, the the oil recovery, uh, process to uh, help iran with its mature fields um, there are still lots of questions and confusions particularly because of some historical background iran has offered production sharing contract or at least in the media we heard about it to ongc of india so there are questions w- because ongc recently announced that they're interested to go back and invest in the same field are they going to get the same part of same production sharing what the previous Iranian oil minister uh, Rostam Ghassami mentioned, the same one, or that was only for the sanction time and they are going to be getting the same IPC how that production sharing contract got permission. Because we never heard when the uh, minister announcing that we are offering production sharing contract to ONGC, there was no uh, problem from parliament. So was there special permission? This is only a sanction time, or uh, what is the difference? Some of the Iranian official announced that the company can include the production in their balance sheet, but then this has a conflict with Iranian domestic constitution, which says that Iranian... Uh, any hydrocarbon uh, or any resources belongs to the public. So even Iranian private company would have, wouldn't have access to that. Mm-hmm. But is, are they going just kind of mirroring what is happening in Mexico to say whatever is underground? So we have to wait till mm-hmm. December. But something that is important, I just wanted to add to what uh, Brenda mentioned is when it comes to natural gas export, especially, let's say, to Saudi Arabia, how Saudi Arabia is going to feel, Iran exporting, extracting mm-hmm. gas from the share field, Farzad B, which Saudi is hypersensitive about that, and then exporting it to Saudi, you know?
0: <laughs> so there's lots of
2: issues. Same for Qatar. And as Brenda mentioned, even GCC countries are not purchasing enough gas from Qatar. So what Iran really ends up to do that is to re- process this gas and sell the final product by inc- by pr- Involving the IOC in that process. Let's let's, uh, talk about India, case of India. Peace pipeline, perhaps it's not going to India, and Indian are convinced that Either LNG, Iran's LNG, or pipeline is not coming to India. But what now they're interested is into developing and investing in Iran's, let's say, Farzad-B gas field, and then extracting this gas, and then investing in a petrochemical factory in, let's say, Chabahar, and putting that gas with some subsidies or discount, and then take back home what they really need, which is the final products, and uh, petrochemical, like, let's say, certain petrochemical uh, products that they want. And this also helps Iran economy and also helps the marketing. So there is going to be different packages for different countries, how they can come and invest in Iran and get the final products that they need rather than just exporting its gas raw and in the traditional uh, forms. Let's say exporting electricity. So one company, country like Turkey or Saudi Arabia in a fantasy world would be interested in coming and investing in Farzad B and then use the Farzad B gas in processing it into electricity. So there is going to be different packages of how Iran is going to export this oil. And even if there is not a written agreement between Russia and Iran uh, to getting Russian support for the deal and uh, not being fearful that Iranian gas is going to threaten the Russia, is that Russian gas kingdom is pipeline. So if Iran export LNG is not directly uh, 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 threatening Russian interest because price-wise is not uh, competing. Because if Russia is exporting gas through a, a pipeline to Europe, Iranian gas why LNG to Europe would be always an alternative resource, wouldn't be especially in this economy, unless the countries are willing to pay for more gas, for more prices, mm-hmm. uh, for Iranian LNG. So, Brenda, it's, would you have a
4: comment I mean, there? In terms of LNG exports from Iran to Europe, you know, then you would be competing with American LNG, which you know it's going to be most likely cheaper than Iranian produced. Probably, you know, the free trade agreements a lot, a lot easier to facilitate the. American LNG, that's why I think a lot of these discussions about Iran and Europe's LNG. I mean, for instance, it's even quite interesting that why, why even the EU is dealing with an LNG strategy when it's something that actually is a lot less sensitive and more you know, more flexible. But um, yeah, I think that it would, it would definitely, the US would be a, much more likely to get those markets than Iran in, in terms of European LNG imports.
2: Or who knows, maybe the European are just using this as a bargaining chip with Russian (laughs) to bring the prices down. Um,
1: So you and I, being of Iranian descent, sort of are familiar with this issue, but I kind of wanted to spell it out a little bit, um, which is there's this kind of uh, dichotomy within Iran in the sense of they want Western technology and and the firms there to kind of produce the natural resources, but at the same time, there is this sort of history and... Kind of long-standing um, suspicion of foreigners exploiting natural resources in Iran. this goes back to you know the discovery of oil and uh, the concessions, the you know, the sort of history with the British. So do you think that that debate has resolved itself in the form of maybe exporting these products rather than the the, the raw goods or um, is there still kind of some you know issues that we're going to continue? I think it manifested itself in the kind of difficult, um, maybe contracts and the the, the pricing issues that, that existed. So I don't, maybe if you want to just, those are just general thoughts if you want to discuss that.
2: Only just in terms of their feeling about extracting the resources. So I don't think that their feeling is going to hurt if they just produce like petrochemical and export petrochemical or refineries. In fact, it creates more job, better economy for Iranian. And as Supreme Leader announcing his uh, 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 economy a resistant doctrine is going to help Iran to be both have building a resistant a resistant economy and empowering its resources so I don't think that Iranian would have any negative feeling toward that uh, when it comes to the ownership of resources goes back to the concessions and Iranian uh, Constitution that we are not allowing any country company to have ownership of the resources however we know that in production sharing contract that ownership of resources is not really legally like the IOC is just booking the production share uh, out of the field. So Iranian might be tweaking uh, some, be able to tweak some of the points of agreement. But what we heard is that particularly with the share field and those fields that Iran has sensitivities, they're going to, of course, offer hmm. uh, more flexible terms and as, as what they did. I mean, Farzad-B now is a very sensitive uh, hmm. Iran-Saudi share fields, and uh, we saw that even, when uh, uh, previous minister, Rostam Ghassami, announced the production sharing, Iran is going to offer production sharing to ONGC, even the sanctions were tighter, and the prospects of sanction relief of what we have today were not exist two years ago, but ONGC said that we're going to get it because if we don't, Chinese are going to get it. So uh, the more flexible, as uh, barbara mentioned especially at the time of the low oil prices it was very helpful to iran because companies are looking on the cost produ- production cost the simplicity of the rock in iran the production cost for oil, it's between 2 to $7 per barrel in Iran. I mean, sometimes it's just like people here are like, wow, you know, comparing it with how much is the production cost here uh, in unconventional resources. So of course, uh, low oil prices is going to incentivize, incentivize the uh, international oil companies to go and invest in Iran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can we um,
1: discuss a little bit about LNG? So, my understanding was that you know this technology was kind of closed off to Iran uh, under sanctions um, because it really ex- exists um, in, in Western uh, companies. Um, so now what are Iran's options in developing its LNG facilities?
2: that's a good question and that's as of now we know that it's not easy for iran to access and have the lng uh technology and that's why maybe they are focusing on refining or uh, converting their gas into other uh products or exporting it with uh, pipeline but what we heard in the past weeks were mainly european that coming and Giving the idea, like the Spanish delegate, that or German companies that we are we are interested in bringing LNG facilities here and mm-hmm. taking the LNG back. So it was from European side, mm-hmm. who, which was proposed to Iran previously or still currently. Iran was looking on the limited LNG facilities in Oman to exporting his gas to uh, Oman and then export, re-exporting it uh, as LNG. I see. Okay. Well, I think um, we have about 35
1: minutes uh, left, so I think we'll open it up to, to questions. Um, there's a lot of expertise in the audience, so it'd be good to hear from you all. Um, so yeah, maybe just, um, just raise your hand and uh, introduce yourself and keep your questions brief, please. Uh, so yeah, this gentleman right here. Hi, uh, my name is Nick Boros with TD International. Um, My question is, how do you see the opening and changes in the energy sector affecting the IRGC? And if that's not complicated enough, how did the changes to the IRGC
4: affect future opening?
1: Uh, what, what changes in, so the IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is um, sort of this elite military within Iran, also controls a lot of the political system. But what changes within the IRGC are you referring to? Uh,
0: could it strengthen or weaken their control inside of Iran's economy?
1: The, the, okay. the IRGC's.
4: Okay. Yeah. And then um, the presence of the IRGC is potentially an obstacle. To opening
1: Okay so I guess some, the context of this is also that you know many top IRGC officials are also top officials within um, other ministries and in the Parliament and um, they kind of have uh, they're, they're you know present in uh, very very active and present in, um, in Iran's political system and also the, the oil sector. So the previous minister was a IRGC general. Um, So, Barbara, do you want to start and maybe Sarah You
3: know, I think the IRGC will find a way to benefit uh, no matter what. Uh, But uh, I think, frankly, that this is going to to weaken their hold on the economy a little bit because these are going to be deals that will be made uh, by the National Iranian Oil Company with foreign companies, new ventures that will be set up. Uh, There may be IRGC veterans who are involved in some of these companies who will take a cut one way or another. Uh, but they don't have the expertise to do uh, the development that's required for Iran. They need the outside expertise. So uh, I'm not overly concerned that they're going to somehow uh, monopolize this or that they're going to uh, block it. They, they will get a cut, though. I don't know. Sarah, you agree?
2: No, I agree. And also, so if there's a sanction removal, some of these uh, sanctioned names or generals would come out of the sanction list. But something that I would see that is this complicates and prolongs the process of signing a contract and finding domestic partners with Iranian. Because most of the international companies, when they want to find a domestic partner, and mostly it's required in some of, because uh, according to Iran's uh, foreign investment regulation, there is no limitation on the ownership of investments. So you can have 100% of uh, investment for an uh, international company. But in the upstream energy sector, it's required by NIOC to find a domestic partner and then sign a 49-51% uh, contract. So and I, or the par- Iranian partner not only would get the technology from the other side working with them, but also will have control over the uh, very sensitive uh, investment in its upstream. So the IOC would require to find a domestic partner. And most of the IOCs, international companies need to do due diligence and their compliance program. Uh, compliance uh, past this uh, domestic uh, firm from their due diligence and compliance uh, networks to make sure that this domestic partner is not related with any IRGC uh, or, or any sanctioned entities in Iran. Also and the second issue is that recently by Iranian officials, Iranian oil ministers starting to re- reveal many corruption activities in Iran during the previous minister that IRGC or other government uh, people were Engage in like money laundering or buying, let's say, 30 uh, drilling rigs that Iran never received them. So, foreign companies could not engage or sign a contract with any company or any entity that have any direct, indirect ties with sanctioned entities, IRGC or any other entity, sanctioned people, or with companies or entities that have been dealing with corruption because then they would have a problem back home. So, this prolongs the uh, negotiation, the co- contractual signing pro- uh, process, and uh, of course, creates more complexity for finding uh, domestic partners.
1: And the US has said, I think it was um, Adam Zubin who was testifying, who said that um, uh, if you know, any, co- any foreign company that does business with a sanctioned entity like the IRGC would, uh, face, would you know, face the possibility of sanctions, uh, okay. still I think the US secondary sanctions remain on, on the IRGC. I mean, how do you, how would you see the Iranians reacting to that? Um, if if that were to happen, would they kind of view that as a violation of the JCPOA, or kind of would they look the other way?
3: Um, I would, you know. Again, I'm 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 not an expert on on how the oil companies are going to get around this. I would assume that there will be new ventures, new companies set up in Iran, probably to get around this, and that uh, they will be careful to try not to have sanctioned individuals you know, prominent in those companies because the Iranians will anticipate this, although there is a schedule for lifting sanctions on many of these individuals uh, and entities over time. My understanding, again, you have to go back to the JCPOA. All of the sanctions uh, that relate to uh, nuclear-related issues come off. Uh, This is what the United States agreed to. So I don't think that simply membership in the IRGC is sufficient. I think it, you would have to show that it is an entity that's involved in acts of terrorism or some other activity that remains sanctioned under US law. But if it's, if it's purely nuclear related, it yeah. has to come off. Uh, there's going to be plenty of work for a lot of lawyers, I think, to, to sort through this
2: after the current minister many people have been changed so the board of many of iran particularly iran's national or like subcontracting companies have been changed you know mm-hmm. so there is a high possibility that there is a less direct linkage between mm-hmm. like these professional like oil companies but on the other side any ioc could not just you know they would definitely all of them go through the process of due diligence and uh I
1: mean, the IRGC do have have a a huge role in Iran's economy. I mean, do you think it's even practical that a Western company could go into Iran and not encounter um, the IRGC at some stage of the process?
3: I think it's unlikely that they would not
1: encounter them. Right. Yeah. So that the question
3: just, is whether they're going to be able to find a way to get around that
1: that yeah. that issue in order to, compli- to make the deals. Yeah. There's a lot of compliance issues there. I speak to a lot of sanctions lawyers, and this is something they they kind of bring up a lot. Um, all right. Next question. Uh, yes, please.
2: Yes, uh, Patricia Shuker for Pipeline Oil and Gas uh, in Dubai. Um, since there's uncertainty in the uh, energy market that undermines the opportunities for foreign uh, energy investment in Iran, I'd like to come back to the potential share, because you looked at the why of the potential share, and I would, I would like to ask you about the how. Uh, basically, how are changes in the global natural gas industry impacting Iran's poten- potential share of the regional international market? And also, um, if you can outline how you see the energy relations between Iran and the UAE. Thank you. UAE. Okay. okay.
4: So market share, um, Brenda. Did you want to address that? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, Iran trades less than a percent of the um, glo- global uh, gas trade. So you know, and, and, and as, and, and as uh, Yeganeh pointed out, in most years it's a net natural gas importer. Last year, it, it, it was a little bit of a. A shift. It, it imports more gas from Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan than it exports to Armenia uh, and Turkey. So there's definitely a long way to go. And I think, you know, I think that we always there's there's below the ground resources and there's above the ground resources. And I think the, the dichotomy between Iran, Qatar and Iran shows you, you know, how important. The above-the-ground regulatory environment is investment environment. Let's remember that even before the sanctions, it was very difficult to invest in the Iranian oil and gas uh, industry. A lot of companies left, not because of sanctions, not because of policies, but simply because of how difficult it was, for, in their opinion, to put a large investment in, and get that um, investment out. So many of these issues will probably, uh, you know, be there, be there as well. And um, yes, it's it's a competitive, uh, much more competitive environment. It's, again, like looking into something like European uh, gas. Gas demand to think that Iran would have to compete with U.S. and you know exports in, in, into the Atlantic Basin, something we couldn't have imagined you know five years ago. But but that's uh, you know we often think about how Iranian gas is going to you know in, impact how uh, you know sort of small players, but really you know the big the big revolution is of the of course American gas that's going to be hitting more and more uh, markets soon. Mm-hmm.
1: And and what about
4: the Iran UAE relations, Sarah or,
1: or Brenda maybe?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean the same. The sa- you know, the same kind of uh, issues that we sp- spoke before about the, the the Gulf. You know, the the prospects to precisely there's this huge commercial gap. You know, on one hand, the commercial commerciality is there for more um, imports within within the region, um, but the same problems in terms of demarcation, trust, as Sarah pointed out, are still going to be there. Mm-hmm.
2: So. Just, just when we talk about you, I, I like to distinguish Abu Dhabi and Dubai because yeah. uh, there's a lot of business between Iran and Dubai, and the uh, Dubai's authorities are always very keen and interested in increasing their economic relation with Iran. Uh, whereas Abu Dhabi is always more conservative and more uh, 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 contempt uh, in increasing the relations. So. Of, especially with the gas, because of the, Kersen, the history of the Kyrsten issues, still there are some bitterness between the two countries, but every time that I travel there, I get the two senses of uh, UA authorities are interested in kind of the idea of importing gas from Iran because it's economically profitable, but still there are certain uh, political uh, drawbacks and uh, they need more certainties. Uh, maybe if the sanctions are reduced and the prospects of uh, Iran's uh, natural gas and energy uh, to be more uh, developed and they might consider it again.
1: I think probably prior to 2009-2010, the Dubai side kind of won that argument when it came to determining UAE policy. There was a great deal of trade and maybe uh, for the last few years it's been Abu Dhabi that has, that has predominated. What would you uh, say is kind of going forward, <laughs> well, how will that shake out?
2: Well, I would say that the economic in- relation was even sustained, even during the sanctions, so. It was lessened, though. Le- of course. Iran's. Uh, economic relation with every with the whole world lesson mm-hmm. because of the sanctions but that relation was still there but there are like other issues like the islands conflict between the two countries that still create lots of problem uh, so I would mm-hmm. say that if economically makes it very profitable it's not only the reason that people in the Gulf would decide GCC countries special would decide to enter into that energy uh, relations because there's always issue of trust issue of uh, uh, comp- uh, uh, they're uh, feeling like uh, competitive to each others, mm-hmm. and as Brenda said, even they are not uh, importing a lot of gas from Qatar, which they're all Muslim Brothers Arabs, you know. So mm-hmm. when it comes to issue of Iran, it's just more yeah, political yeah. complications. Yeah. All
1: right. Um, next question. Um, this gentleman right here, and then I'll go to this side.
4: Good afternoon, Ariel Cohen, the Atlantic Council. Brenda, uh, there is a pipeline from Iran to Turkey, and it's underutilized. The Iranians did not uh, perform very well as suppliers. Their prices are high, there are interruptions,
0: but with uh, possibilities for investment and potential Western and Turkish partners, what is your view of
4: expansion of the Iranian gas exports via Turkey to the Turkish market and then further
0: uh, north to Europe. Thank you.
4: Um, okay so you know as Sarah pointed out that you know the first thing of all these different questions is what's going to happen with domestic production so you know first we have to look what are the trends and actually in this last year to two years Iran is actually sanctions have maybe been a good thing they've actually done a good job in upping their domestic production uh, reducing somewhat the, the trends of domestic consumption so um, it could you know they could be in that direction but still you have to remember that this is a country which you know uh, which actually is you know has had heat blo- heat uh, provision problems in the winter in fact Iran is a fastted country in terms of its overall total consumption because it's between 60 and 70% uh, of its total energy consumption on gas, and that's a really interesting and unique uh, country that so much of its general, you know, e- industry power generation I- I is on natural gas. That creates both opportunities and challenges for, for the policymakers and, and for their d- domestic uh, production. So a big issue, for instance, in terms of the domestic production. production, before we could talk of these issues, will be production. price, subsidies, you know, again, if they can continue to up the domestic price. Reduce the domestic subsidies with, with again, with the potential uh, domestic stability questions for Iran and for the other countries in the region. Um, yeah, to Turkey, you have this uh, Tabriz-Ankara uh, pipeline, and and the. Um, the the big big problems have been generally in the winter when demand has been high in both Iran and in Turkey and in the, them meeting their commitments. There's always been a, price disputes between Turkey and Iran. You know when there there could be some you know flexibility and cha- you know changes in the price. And I think in general, for talking about sort of the big trends, Turkey is going to be a very interesting uh, uh, arena for for future gas plays because we're going to have now pretty soon uh, really five. Uh, Import projects into Turkey. Uh, you know, so you have the you have the existing uh, Iranian uh, export into into Iran. You have the um, South uh, South Caucasus uh, uh, pipeline. You're going to have the second having the Southern Gas Corridor having having Tanap uh, come in. You have Russian uh, uh, gas right now, and you and there's a good chance you'll have this is part of your expertise. But you'll have at least a train of, of Turkish streams. So you're going to have a lot of capacity coming into Turkey. Uh, you know, more than they're going to need for their market, and it's going to be. Again, Again, an interesting play between Russia and Iran um, for the Turkish market, for the Turkish market beyond. So all the students here looking for dissertation topics and stuff, (laughs) study Turkish, I think. uh, um, And uh, I I think it's going to be a really interesting play within Turkey. And then, of course, uh, Turkey has potential of Kurdish gas, uh, less, you know, it's something that's talked about, probably less practical, but Eastern Mediterranean gas. Um, and it's going to be a lot of interesting politics and economics uh, coming out of Turkey, within Turkey itself. And in general, Turkey domestic politics, a very interesting period as well. So uh, a, a lot to, a lot of research to do.
1: Yeah, right over here.
3: Hi, I'm Zachary Kyler from CSIS. Um, I wanted to ask about the commercial viability of LNG exports from Iran. Um, how feasible does that seem, given the um, large capital expenditure that requires low gas prices for you know the short-term foreseeable future and the potentially large amount of political risk? Um, and then a related question, um, why is Iran interested in um, entertaining discussions with European companies if um, LNG exports don't seem viable? Does there seem to be a diplomatic relationship-building motive there, or do you think that the Iranian government actually Uh, and uh, and IOC actually do see LNG exports as a a potential option.
1: Um, Okay, so I can maybe add a little bit on the second question, which is that, you know, um, I think, and this is just sort of me observing, and maybe Sarah, you can also chime in, but um, you know, when you talk to people kind of during the negotiations and when the sanctions were sort of being laid on really thick in 2010 to 2012, there wasn't really a constituency within European capitals in terms of like the business community that would advocate on on part of Iran, um, and I think that's because they weren't present in Iran, right? So maybe the Iranians have learned from that and thought, okay, if we want uh, kind of some political uh, constituents in Europe who would advocate against new sanctions be placed on Iran, um, then uh, having uh, you know opening discussions on on gas exports would would be wise, and I you know, as, as when it comes to the viability, I mean, maybe it, it's 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 easy to talk about it and then and kind of like create that excitement and then um, you can kind of deal with those viability questions later. But, so that's one. On um, Maybe Barbara, if you wanna address that as well or, or anyone else, and yeah, we can no, go I, back I to the commercial. I agree absolutely
3: with your point. That's why I said I don't think secondary sanctions are coming back. Uh, anytime soon. it's It's been very clear from the interest that European officials and business people have shown in Iran since even before the the JCPOA was was finalized uh, that they see Iran as a, a key market and a, uh, a place that they are sorry that they had to leave for a while and they want very much to come back uh, and utilize this opportunity. So um, whether some of these deals come through or not is maybe less yeah. to the point. Uh, Assuming, again, Iran does not violate this agreement, um, you know, I think this is really, it's going to be very difficult to talk about imposing new sanctions on Iran that would affect uh, European business there yeah. in particular.
1: Zach, so that's like kind of the political dividend, I guess, that Iran would get. And then um, when it comes to commercial and LNG, um, I don't know if either of you want to address that. Uh,
2: I don't think... I don't think it's uh, economically beneficial. I mean, it depends on which destination you're looking at. I mean, if you're looking at Europe. And the reason for that is that as long as Russia is there, Russian gas with that price, economically is not beneficial. But for Iran with these huge gas reserves, of course, whoever comes and knock your door and say, you know what, I will diversify your markets. And I will help you diversify your tools and add to your tools of export will definitely accept that. So this is depends on Europe, if they want to buy Iranian LNG or not. But if they uh, they come to Iran and they give the proposal for we are developing LNG to get some of that back as an alternative resources, that's their choice. But on Iran's side, it's different. Of course, they would want to have any possibility. And uh, But I don't think that it's economically beneficial. Uh, we also need to look at the timeline whenever we are talking about Iranian oil, Iranian gas. Are we talking about 2018, 2020, or we are looking on 2030, because Iran's, at the current moment we discussed it, doesn't have huge export capacity left. So we, it depends on how much export capacity Iran has, how much extra capacity it has, because Iran already announced a lot of different programs for its gas. Using, uh, increasing its petrochemical value by triple by 2020, which is huge ambition. Uh, Iran is increasing and expanding its uh, oil and condensate refinery and gas refinery capacity up to 3 million uh, barrels per day. They are using it in their electricity sector, as Brenda said. Uh, CNG, which is very small, uh, you mentioned, very small uh, portion of, uh, really, gas uh, use in Iran. Also, converting it into electricity, exporting electricity. So we have all the options now. And as sanctions removed, we have all this excitement, as you said. But we should really look into the time period and say, OK, we are looking on Iran's gas market or oil market in medium term, in long term. Uh, and uh, I think that all matters.
4: I would just comment that um, I think Iran has to make major decisions on its its strategy with gas at a time of huge uncertainty in in the global gas market or, or, or markets. So like, for instance, one question, you know, a major question. We're in a period where there's a proliferation of new gas resources, new producers, not just new. Volumes in terms of numbers, but also their geographic spread, and there 's a big debate I think within the natural gas world of how this will affect LNG trade because on one hand you could say, well, if there are a lot more players we 're going to trade a lot more LNG or you could make the exact opposite argument if there 's a lot more gas spread around the world, then why wouldn 't we go for cheaper pipeline gas and thus actually reduce the demand for lng and if you're looking at it in the terms of the market, LNG demand and trade is you know is, is, is going down um, you know so we, we don 't see we see an increase of capacity but but, but a, a decrease in demand so it's a really big question about the nature of LNG trade the de- the demand trends um, I, you know, we like think, and you you asked, well, if the LNG is not really such an option, why are they having these discussions? Well, you can make the same argument. Take, for instance, the domestic political debate in the United States. You know, we have to accelerate uh, 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 applications for LNG exports to Europe and to free countries. Well, we're probably going to approve more licenses for export than there's ever going to actually be demand for this gas. Just as Sarah pointed out, that you know, in terms of the price disparities, s- s- still European countries are going to want to have, uh, you know, pi- uh, g- cheap pipeline gas versus LNG. And most of the markets that really need the diversity are, are markets that are, are landlocked countries, you know, and can't really access the, the, the LNG unless it goes through, through neighbors. So, but we still have those political debates. I think in general, energy diplomacy, you know, it's a good thing. It's a neutral topic. It's a positive topic. It's a good thing that Iran and Europe and, or anyone is just, you know discussing these things. We see this dialogue, for instance, uh, a very positive dialogue between Israel and Turkey on, on gas issues. You know, it's something that whether something will come out of it. I doubt it. Is it a good thing that they're talking on a very neutral, positive topic? It's probably a good thing. So.
1: All
0: right.
4: Um, yes, sir? Bjorn right Hamso from the World Bank. Uh, I have a question about climate, climate change and whether the government would be interested in that topic in the future of the sanction, more specifically uh, a lot of gas is flared in Iran at oil production site uh, to the tune of about 10 billion cubic meters per year. Is that an issue that they could be interested in addressing in the future because of climate change or resource management? Or is it just a matter of the lowest cost from, from gas fields they are interested in? Thanks. So I
1: had a little trouble catching the end of the question, but it's mainly about like is Iran interested in capturing the flared gas um, that it now, it's kind of the associated gas that comes from The oil fields, uh, I think Iran and Iraq, and and maybe other countries, you know, currently flare this gas. I read a statistic once, I don't know how accurate it is, that um, Iran flares enough gas in a year to power France, um, (laughs) which, you know, it seems. Very high to me. So yeah, this is an issue that's been on my mind as well. Um, you know, I, my understanding is that they, the technology to capture that flared gas is Western and maybe even just U.S. But can they now um, build those uh, whatever tech, tech the technology that they would need to capture that gas? On um, you know, once sanctions are removed.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things in agenda for Iran to do. Uh, they need 200. $50 billion of investment and in lots of different uh, uh, aspects. Of course, that's very important. They have done lots of discussions. They said many statements. They're looking and planned a lot to do that, but they have priorities. So, depending on how fast and how quick they could have access to international investment and technology, that would matter too. But I would say now the first priorities for their spending money uh, would be South for gas and West Garon for their oil, and also to increase the, because they have uh, a natural pressure, a natural production drop every year, about 400, 450 uh, kBD. So, um, reinjecting gas and maintaining their oil production, these are their immediate uh, priorities.
1: And I guess to address the, kind of the larger point of your question, which is is global warming a, a priority for Iran's government? Um, how would you answer that?
2: Well, I mean, Iran has an institute or center for uh, environment uh, protection, I think, if I did the correct trans- uh, translation. Um, they obviously, like any other environment institution, they have their own plans. But I don't know. I'm not really uh, in a position to know how fast and how quick they're going. I know that they, they were able to, by uh, su- uh, reducing the uh, subsidies on the fuel, Uh, reducing the car drives and controlling the pollution, particularly in the major cities. But how fast and when is going to be solved? I don't know. I don't have any examples.
3: Climate change is a huge issue in Iran. And one of the things I hope to see is that uh, organizations like the Global Environmental Fund will be able to lend to Iran again under sanctions. They were blocked from a number of projects, which was really self-defeating. I think the two major issues are the pollution uh, in, in the cities, uh, which is horrible. And uh, the second is desertification, the fact that Iran's uh, rivers and lakes are drying up, and uh, uh, it's the, there's poor use of water for agricultural use. And, and also in, in the cities, water is not metered. People waste water. Um, the last time I was in Iran a couple of years ago, there were a number of civil society groups that were coming together to talk about these issues. And I think Iran is going to be very, very eager for collaboration with uh, foreign governments, universities, others, uh, to talk about how they can improve water use and, uh, and cut down on pollution.
1: All right. Um, yes, ma'am, right here.
2: Um, Thank you very much. My name is Kula from American University. Um, A lot have been said about the business side of things or the economy, if you will. Um, I'm interested in hearing what are the conversations around the security side of things. I know a lot of um, activities is or will be happening in the region uh, in relations to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and all those other um, terrorist organizations, whether our conversation around um, in relations to Iran and the whole deal. Thank you.
3: Uh, I would recommend that you watch the C-SPAN tape of uh, uh, an event that we had here yesterday uh, where we had a professor from the University of Tehran talk about Iran's threat perceptions and uh, what Iran's posture would be in the region after the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action. Uh, There is a debate going on in uh, Iran's foreign policy elite over exactly how interventionist Iran should be, and there are actually some voices in Iran suggesting uh, that the country is overextended and that ISIS is not Iran's problem and uh, that Iran should not be expending so much uh, of its resources, for example, in Iraq, Uh, you know, trying to to push back against ISIS uh, and even in Syria and other places. So um, this is something that's going to be affected, I think, um, obviously by the posture the United States and the Gulf states and uh, Israel take toward Iran, Mm -hmm. whether there is any possibility for collaboration against groups like ISIS or whether it's all going to be about containing, quote-unquote, Iran. Uh, And uh, that's a debate that I think we've really yet to have seriously in the United States, and I hope that we do have
1: so I think the security issues may be a little bit beyond the scope of this panel, but um, I do wonder if the situation in Iraq, would that affect Iran's um, gas exports into Iraq in terms of the safety of the pipeline? So just to bring it back to gas, um, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure kind of geographically where those the pipeline would go and if uh, ISIS is a factor there. But uh-huh.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't comment on the specific movements of ISIS, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, still with the Iraq The Iranian exports to Iraq are still very it's just beginning these months, so it's really yeah. hard to say how, exactly how it's going to develop. But I would say that there are some security, you know, just like with any power returns to, you know, isolation has its, it freezes some, you know, conflicts, and so suddenly when you have, we saw this with, you know, the demise of the Soviet Union. The minute you don't have Moscow there, suddenly all sorts of other issues start to come up that were that were held, you know, in sort of deep freeze for a while. So I think there's a couple issues. If we don't have enough security issues to worry about, I think there are a few issues. One. Um, we have between Saudi Arabia and Iran not only uh, geopolitical conflict, you know, basically a proxy war that they're h- having in, in Yemen and other different competitive issues, but there is also a big um, oil price uh, uh, issue. If I could, if I can move on from <laughs> gas a bit, a bit to oil, that you know, Iran is also in a very difficult situation. A paradox is the more oil it starts to export, the more the oil price is going to go going to go down, um, and this is bad for Iran. This is bad for its for, for its neighbors, and so. I wouldn't be surprised if Iran tries to think of a strategy of well, how do we create some issues that might, you know, might. Bring the oil price up, and you can imagine what type of security issues um, you know those could be. So there is there is an Iranian I- interest. <laughs> That's really Machiavellian. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Middle East. Okay, <laughs> um, you know, And second, again, we're going to have that the delimitation uh, issues uh, resurface in, in the region, um, and again, Russia Russia Iran uh, m- maybe more competition versus cooperation as they've, they've had in the past. All right, uh, maybe just a couple more questions.
1: Uh, yes, sir, and then in the back. Alan Kieswitter with the Middle East Institute, many times expressions been used, Iran has many decisions to make, but the question is, who makes them? Uh, because uh, most of them have political and domestic uh, implications. Is this something for the National Security Council, or is this something for President Rahani? Does it go to the Supreme Leader? What sorts out at the bottom, at the ministerial level?
0: Any insights? The energy. Well, I think it
2: depends on which... Type of decision you are talking, for instance, decision on how much oil discount Iran is going to give, or decision on like uh, contractual system, on prioritizing. So it's all matters that what type of decision we are talking about. Like who is going to take a decision about IPC contracts? Well, we know that the IPC was shaped by Zanganez appointing a group. Said Mehdi Hosseini, if I'm not mistaking, the head of the group, to uh, coming up with new new, uh, upstream contract with lots of incentives. And this group started talking with many oil companies in the past year or so. Uh, Is the parliament required to pass and accept this or not? Who is going to decide this contract is going to be the final contract? That's a very complicated issue because, again, going back, we know that we actually saw the 120, 130 pages draft of a what they call it production sharing agreement that the previous minister offered to uh, India. So was there special uh, agreement, special permission for this certain agre- uh, certain contract to go? Is this going to Parliament? So it all depends, I would say, on the conditions. So if there is Iran under very tough limitations and might be like certain permission from higher levels to let you to uh, put your contract. On uh, the normal issue will go on the normal processing system, which Parliament should look at it and like approve it. Uh, On the amount of discount on the oil, Uh, it depends on which time we are talking. Obviously, after 2012 uh, and after Zangenet, there has been more decision-making, more groups involved in how much discounts to whom we are going to sell, and more uh, upstream uh, and more broader upstream uh, decision making in oil and gas i would say that it's nioc because they have their own high highly professional technical people to tell um, to really advise the minister and come to this conclusion they have different departments that they are planning and integrating planning system planning uh, departments that they decide that which uh, fields now have to be invested how much. But when it comes to more sensitive issues, of course, there are other, uh, other factors, other entities, other uh, groups that they would be influenced, have their own influence.
1: If you wanted to touch on that real quick and then we'll grab one more yeah, question. Yeah, sure. Well,
3: I mean, obviously there are politics involved. You may remember in 1995 when Rafsanjani was president and he made a very uh, attractive offer to Conoco which Conoco wanted to accept. And then, of course, uh, the Clinton administration barred it and then slapped an embargo on US trade and investment with Iran. So I think when it comes to you know, multi-billion dollar deals uh, that the political elite obviously gets involved, the National Security Council, and I would assume the
1: Supreme Leader as well. All right, there was a question back here. Yeah.
0: Xenia Gutzol from
1: Berkeley Research Group. Um, Could you comment a bit more on the likelihood that Iran will not comply with the terms of the deal? Um, How much pressure is there domestically to uh, pursue a nuclear weapon? And who are the actors that might put that pressure?
3: Yeah, All of the pressure is toward implementation. Uh, The latest polls, I think, show that President Rouhani, who was hovering at about 50% popularity, is now at 80% popularity. Uh, Iranians have been waiting for this for a very, very, very long time. Uh, so, uh, you know, it would, it would have to take, I mean, obviously they're following the process in the United States, but it would have to take a gross violation of the deal on the part of the United States, I think, for Iran to to drop out of uh, implementing this deal. And in terms of nuclear weapons, I mean, they have now forsworn uh, five or six different times any intention of developing nuclear weapons. It's in. In the preamble and the body of uh, of this JCPOA, and it's also in the UN Security Council resolution that was passed.
1: All right, then yeah, last question back
0: here. Uh, thank you, Bill Murray from uh, Real Clear Energy. The last question prompted me to talk about the possibility that, with this new popularity with Rouhani and the moderates against the principalists, that the election is coming up for the Council of. Uh, uh, the body that will select the oh, next the
3: assembly, of experts, the yeah. assembly
0: of experts is also in play, because that will be early next year, correct? Do you talk about this momentum that seems mm-hmm. to be behind the moderates and Rouhani and how that mm-hmm. could actually influence uh, you know, that Iran is in play in terms of the yeah. regime Again, changing Again, I would the recommend
3: future. you watch, uh, watch the, uh, the tape of the event we did yesterday. Uh, Nasir Hadian, professor from the University of Tehran, was asked about these elections. And uh, he predicted that the Council of Guardians, which is a body that has to vet uh, candidates for elected office in Iran, uh, would disqualify uh, a number of people uh, on the, the reformist side, but that the reformist pragmatists would still win the parliamentary elections because, simply because there is such a groundswell of support for a more moderate point of view in Iran. When it comes to the Assembly of Experts, so that's a largely clerical body that chooses the next supreme leader. And that's much more an inside game uh, among the, uh, you know, the, the, the political ayatollahs of Iran, uh, and the makeup of that uh, I think is is harder to predict. Um, but the parliament, for sure, if this imp- if if this deal is implemented, if Iranians begin to see some relief of sanctions, uh, it will definitely uh, produce uh, a, a much more moderate, pragmatic, forward-leaning parliament.
1: All right, well, um, that brings us to the end of the panel. Um, Thank you all for coming, and thank you to our panelists uh, for their insights, and thanks to the Atlantic Council.
3: (laughs) I learned a lot from you guys, thank you.